Once David is assured that it is safe to return the ark to the holy city, he sets out to retrieve it from the house of Obed-Edom. This is the 12th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, and Exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading comes from Samuel and chapter 6, Samuel and chapter 6, the entire chapter. As we return to the dreadful account of Uzzah, by inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even of harps, and on psalteries, and on timbrels, and on cornets, and on cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God, and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Giddite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord had blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, He sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, every one to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaidens of his servants as one of the vain fellows, shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said unto Michal, It was before the Lord which chose me before thy father. 
and before all his house to appoint me a ruler over his people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. And I will yet be more vile than this and will be base in mine own sight and of the maid servants which thou hast spoken of. Of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. The evangelist Matthew writing to us in Matthew in chapter 5, beginning in verse 13 through verse 16. By the same spirit that moved the prophet to write, so does the evangelist Matthew say this. Speaking the words of Christ, he records, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden on the foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now Uzzah and Ohio thought that they were wiser than God. And so, neglecting the clear commandment as to how to transport the sacred ark of the covenant, they chose a new cart. Instead of having the priests bear it upon their shoulders, they decided, well, it might be easier to choose a new card. Of course, this is a new card, and we'll put it upon the card, and the oxen will carry it, and we will be able to bring it into the holy city, Jerusalem. But as it happens through the providential orchestration of God, the oxen stumble. And Uzzah goes to steady the ark, and for his irreverence and for the lack of his honoring of the commandment to have the priests and not the animals bear the ark he is slain by God before all of Israel now the response of the Lord to Uzzah's irreverence frightened David to the point where he left off bringing the ark to the city of Jerusalem he was so afraid that if the ark came into the city of Jerusalem to the holy city it would wreak havoc upon the city even as it brought havoc upon Uzzah So instead of possibly jeopardizing the city and the holy place by subjecting it to God's wrath, he turns into the house of a faithful Levite man named Obed-Edom and leaves the ark with him. We see this in verse 9 and 10. So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him and to the city of David, but he carried it aside into this man's house, the man from Gath. Now David's question is quite curious. Notice what he says. He says, how shall, how shall, in verse 9, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? To be sure the ark would not be taken to Jerusalem on a cart pulled by oxen, that was for sure. It had to be carried by the priests. David now should have known that. And I think for the most part he recognized this, but allowed others to be in charge of the ark's transportation. And everyone was learning a very valuable lesson at this time, that God's word was law. The priests alone were to bear the Ark of the Covenant. And this was a difficult lesson because Uzzah and Ahihu, they thought better than God. 
Now, there are a number of lessons here. Number one, God will have him feared and reverenced. He wants his people to reverence him and keep his commandments. He wants his commandments to be honored, his law to be honored. Not to gain salvation, but according to the scriptures where if you love God, you will keep his commandments. Secondly, here's another lesson, a very, very practical lesson. We should never let others who are obviously not qualified, like Uzzah, like Ahio, to be in charge of making critical decisions, especially when it comes to ecclesiastical matters, especially when it comes to religious matters. Uzzah and Ohio thought that they were qualified simply because they were sons of the priest, and they may even have convinced David that they were qualified when they were obviously not. Let's be more pragmatic, David. Let's not have the priests labor and, and have the ark borne upon their shoulders. Let's use a new cart. Let's use the oxen. It'll get there just as well. David's concern, however, is not so much as to how the ark will be brought into the holy city, but rather when. Perhaps even, even asking the question, now that Uzzah had been destroyed by God for his irreverence, perhaps he's even asking the question, will it ever be able to be brought to the holy city of Jerusalem? In other words, how long until the ark should be in this transitional place before it is placed in its rightful home in the holy city? And so it is for a time housed in the house of a man of Gath who seems, at least by his name, initially by his name, who is not a natural Hebrew, yet certainly a Levite. As we saw last time, it seems as if this man was the same man of First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 18, 21, and 24, which identifies him as one of the gatekeepers, even a gatekeeper of the ark. The Reverend Gordon observes, he says this, he says, if this Obed-Edom was a native of Gath, which he was, his case sheds light on the way in which foreigners could be co-opted into religious offices in the early days of the monarchy. First Chronicles chapter 15 identifies Obed-Edom as a porter or a gatekeeper, which was specifically appointed by the Levites to act as Levitical representatives. In verse 24b we read, Beniah and Eliezer the priest did blow with the trumpets before the ark of God, and Obed-Edom, there he is, Obed-Edom, And Jehiah were doorkeepers for the ark. A very, very important position. Obed-Edom was not only a gatekeeper, a porter, but also it seems as if he worked alongside the temple musicians along with the famous psalmist Asaph. So for the next three months, the ark representing the presence of God was in the house of Obed-Edom, blessing him and his entire household, proving that wherever the ark is, wherever the presence of God, because that's what the ark symbolized, the presence of God. Wherever the ark is, God is there blessing those in its presence. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ stated, where two or three are gathered together in my presence and in my name, there I am in the midst. And this is what the ark was representing. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, And the ark of the Lord, the ark of Yahweh, the covenant God, continued in the house of Obed-Edom three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And then, because of the result of this blessing, news gets to David. 
So the news of the blessing in Obed-Edom's house finally reaches David. And it was told King David in verse 12, saying, The Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh himself, Jehovah, has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. It was exactly because the ark was there. That was the reason for the blessing. Now what we have here is another gospel message. The ark is in the house of an Edomite, a man from Gath, who was not originally from the nation of Israel, nor was he a natural-born Hebrew. Yet the ark is brought to him, and he is blessed in the same way that the ark of God, in other words, the presence of God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, by the direct mediation and direction of Christ, is brought to non-Hebrew individuals. So we see right here a gospel message. The presence of God is brought into the house of a non-natural-born Hebrew. Secondly, Obed is made a priest in the same way that those that are called out of the world, not natural-born Hebrews, are also made priests of God and heirs of the presence of God protectors of the ark of God, protectors of the truth of the gospel of Christ. There's one other interesting point. Thirdly, if David represents Christ, which we know he does, who does Uzzah represent? Well, in the first instance, I believe Uzzah is a picture of ancient Israel who showed utter contempt for the law, utter contempt for the reverence of God, utter contempt for the presence of God, that they were to be stewards over. And because they failed in the same way as Aaron's sons rebelled by bringing strange fire into the holy place, Uzzah brings the strange, even though it was new, a cart to deal with the ark of God. So in the same way that Uzzah showed contempt for God, so did Israel show contempt by neglecting to reverence God. But in the second instance, Uzzah may also represent all those ministers. Remember, he is now ministering. He is now supposedly bringing the presence of God to Israel. And that's what ministers do in the pulpits today. They are to bring the presence of God. They are to expound the scriptures that the presence of God might be there among the people. So Uzzah may also represent not only apostate Israel, but apostate ministers of the gospel who are not actually priests of God and who devise cunning inventions like the new carts, cunning inventions of worship and how to bring about the presence of God apart from what God has dictated. The way you bring about the presence of God is by preaching the gospel of Christ. Not through fanfare, not through inventions, not through worldliness, but through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And so in the same way that David moves the ark into the house of a non-Hebrew to enjoy the presence of God and the blessings of God, so too did Christ bless the Gentiles, the nations of the world, the non-Hebrews, with the presence of God, thereby making them priests and gatekeepers in the house of the Lord. Now remember, the ark not only represents the presence of God, but the entire construction of the ark represents the witness of the church, the Ten Commandments representing the law of God, the pot of manna which represents the bread of life, and Aaron's rod that was dead but now lives representing the new birth to those who have the presence of God symbolized by the ark. Hearing that the ark's presence had blessed the house of Obed-Edom over the past three months, David no longer fears the ark. He recognizes that it was not the ark that was to be feared, but rather the irreverence of Uzzah that God was angry with. Realizing that, David then 
probably almost elated, sends for the ark. But this time, having learned his lesson, it is carried properly according to the law of God by the priests. Notice, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. The Reverend Howie's adds a very practical lesson to David's rekindled attempt to return the ark to its rightful place. Notice what he says. Though we are sometimes hindered in our race, we must not despair. Success shall at last crown our labors. David was ready to bring the ark into its rightful place. In other words, because his goal was right and just, when our goal is right and just, even if our first attempts are frustrated, even if we think that God is against us, after much prayer and contemplation, we should continue nevertheless until God blesses our efforts. As long as they are for the glory of God, as long as they are for the honor of the king to establish his kingdom, we should never, never despair of continuing on. So realizing his mistake in allowing the ark to be carried by the oxen, David offers sacrifices to God for his error. We see this in verse 13. And it was so that when they, bear, when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatling. He didn't want to waste any time. Six paces, thinks about that. Six feet. I'm not going to take any chances now. We're going to, we're going to bless God. We're going to sacrifice This is not going to happen again on my watch. Reverend Howie's comments adding pastoral comforts to his remarks. Notice what he says. David saw and rectified his former mistake. The Levites, according to divine prescription, are appointed to carry the ark. And when they had gone six paces, David caused oxen and fatlings to be offered as an atonement for former errors and in thankfulness for present help. Note, firstly, When God, by his corrections, hath led us to repentance, we need not doubt, but we shall inherit a blessing. Secondly, the blood of the one great sacrifice must be regarded in all our undertakings as the alone foundation for our dependence on God's favor and regard. Now this, no doubt, was a joyous occasion. This is exactly what David wanted And David was going to take full advantage of it by uniting the entire nation under the banner of the ark. Now remember, Israel and Judah are already united under David and under the law. But now, David wants to go one step further. He wants more than just uniting them as a military nation. He wants to unite them under the blessing and the protection of the presence of God. So for David, wanting only the best for Israel, wanting only the best for God's people, he wants to bring the presence of God smack dab in the middle of the city, in the tabernacle of God. And this must have been so incredibly joyous for David. He's going to now take full advantage of it by uniting the entire nation under the banner of the presence of God. And that is what unites us. That is only the thing that really unites us. We can be as different as night and day. We can be of any race or or culture. As long as we have the presence of God, as long as we have the truth of God's law in us and upon us, and we worship the one God having Christ as our mediator, we can be from any nation. We can have any tradition. We can be of any culture, any race. So what unites the people of God is the presence of God. And this is what must unite both Christendom 
and the entire nation as well if it's going to be blessed. If America is going to be blessed, it must be blessed under one God, one Lord, one King, the presence of God. David knew, which so many kings, governors, presidents, and emperors failed to understand, is that the only way to successfully unify a nation, unite a nation, is through the presence of the one true God, which is Jesus Christ, as the reigning king. And only in this way can any nation be blessed. Now consider for a moment the celebration itself. It was not so much a religious celebration per se. It was more of a, of a national celebration which was undergirded by religion. Yes, it was theologically grounded, but it was a national celebration because all national celebrations historically have a religious foundation. It was the ark that was the focus. The ark was the foundation and the reason for the celebration. God was now with Israel. Israel was the recipient of God's presence and therefore it was the recipients of his blessing. David was the instigator in the same way that Christ has instigated the presence of God to be upon the nations of the world through the work of the church. And that is what the church is supposed to do. Bring the truth of God to bear upon the nation. And this is what Jesus was actually declaring in the New Testament Dominion Commission when he says in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Go therefore, go ye, you all, go ye, all of you, therefore, and teach all nations. Note how he never said teach all people. He didn't say teach individuals. Now, of course, you have to teach individuals, but his focus was national. His focus was bigger than people. The commandment is for the unification of every nation which is made up of people, to be sure, yet God is seeking the nations of the world to become subservient to the King of Nations, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal of the church. It's not just to save as many people as you can before hellfire and brimstone comes upon the world. That is not the mission of the church. Jeremiah identifies the Lord as the king of nations in chapter 10. Notice what he says. A rhetorical question, he says, Who would not fear thee, O king of nations? Notice, not king of the church, although he is. Not king of families, although he is. Not king of individuals, although he is. The king of nations. And he doesn't say the king of the Israeli nation. The king of nations, comprehensive. For to thee doth it appertain for as much as among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like unto thee. Note the promise God gave to Jacob when he changed his name to Israel, Prince of God, referring to Jesus, who is the eternal Prince of God. Notice Genesis thirty-five, eleven. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations. Not only a nation, not only Israel, but a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. Consider these verses also, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. All the ends of the world, notice the comprehensive nature, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, turn unto the covenant God Yahweh, Jehovah, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Psalm 72, 11 and 17. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Anticipating a day 
when the nations of the world will bow before the Christ of God. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days. A time stamp. When are those days? Those days are the days of the New Testament, even as the Apostle Peter said, in these last days. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all the hills, all the kingdoms, and all the nations shall flow unto it. Jeremiah 3.17 and 4.2 At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it. To the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. Jeremiah 4.2 and Micah 4.2 and thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. And the nations shall bow themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, into the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord shall go forth out of Zion, out of the church, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Zechariah 2.11, Revelation 15.4. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in the midst of thee and thou shalt know that Yahweh Sebaoth, the Lord of forces, hath sent me unto thee. And then finally in Revelation 15.4 For all nations shall come and worship before thee for thy judgments are made manifest. A comprehensive, a universal, a global, all-inclusive bowing of nations before the Christ of God. No one should be exempt from bowing before the King of Nations. David's celebration was a national national celebration whereby the Ark of God had come to the Holy City in the same way that the Ark of God, the presence of God with the mercy seat and the Ten Commandments and the manna has come to the church, the New Jerusalem, that Holy City. That's what we are. We are that Holy City. We are the city on a hill. And once the ark was brought into that holy city, it would signify once and for all the unification of the nation under God. Now to recite the United States Pledge of Allegiance, in our day especially, and say one nation under God, it's actually an untrue statement. It is what we would like. It's what we would hope for. But to state it in that way, It is an untrue statement because we are no longer one nation under one true God, but rather we are a nation divided and functioning under many gods, most of which are gods of bondage, tyranny, chaos, destruction, and death. David's unification was predicated on the presence of the ark testifying of God's law and His mercy. He understood that if a nation was to be unified under the protection and presence of God, it had to be structured by the law of God by the righteousness of God, by the truth of God, by by justice and equity. The law of God is the only reliable apparatus for a prosperous nation, and it was the giving of that law which pointed to the mercy of God, since the law acts as a schoolmaster pointing us to the Savior. The centrality of God's law was the operating principle of Israel's structure, Israel's government, and that was David's focus. And this is proven by his focus upon the law of God in his Psalms, particularly in Psalm 19 and in Psalm 119. Notice the pains that he takes in those Psalms. Because he knew that if he was to establish a godly government, a godly nation with God's presence and God's blessings, God's law had to be at the center. There had to be righteousness at the center. 
according to R.J. Rushduni, colonial America began in the very much the same way as David did in ancient Israel, establishing God's law as the organizing principle for liberty and justice. Notice what Rushduni says. When New England began its existence as a law order, its adoption of biblical law was both a return to scripture and a return to Europe's past. It was a new beginning in terms of old foundations. It was not an easy beginning in that the many servants who came with the Puritans later were in full-scale revolt against any biblical faith and order. Nevertheless, it was a resolute return to the fundamentals of Christendom. We see this with Charlemagne structuring all of Europe under the law of God. We see this also later on with King Alfred structuring the entire structure of, of England under the law of God. So when America was founded, it returned to that structure. On March 2nd, 1641, the New Haven Colony records show that the law of God without any innovation was made the law of the colony. Notice what it states. According to the fundamental agreement made and published by full and general consent, when the plantation began and government was settled, that the judicial law of God given by Moses and expounded in other parts of Scripture so far as it is a hedge and a fence to the moral law and neither ceremonial nor typical nor had any reference to Canaan, it hath an everlasting equity in it and should be the rule of their proceedings. By April 1644, it was added upon that same record, quote, it was ordered that the judicial laws of God as they were delivered by Moses be a rule to all the courts in this jurisdiction in their proceedings against offenders. Rushduni adds this, quote, it is a modern heresy that holds that the law of God has no meaning nor any binding force for man today. To attempt to study scripture without studying its law is to deny it. To understand Western civilization apart from the impact of biblical law within it and upon it is to seek a fictitious history and to reject 20 centuries and their progress, end quote. So once the sacrifices were complete in a show of respect and repentance for, for what Uzzah did and to cleanse the nation from any blood guilt, David puts on the linen ephod. Note how he girds himself with the priest's ephod, symbolizing that at this moment he is acting as a priest of God. David lays aside his royal garment, this king. He lays aside the kingly garment and he puts on a priestly garment to commemorate the presence of God, the return of the ark, in the same way. Think about the gospel implication here. Laying aside the kingly garment, taking upon himself the priestly garment, even as Jesus laid upon his kingly, laid off his kingly robes, came down to earth as man, take upon his priestly garment to make the sacrifice. So David lays aside his royal garment of king, puts on the priestly garment to commemorate the return of the ark in the same way that Jesus lays aside his royal garment in order to clothe himself with the garment of the priest in order to make the sacrifice which was of himself. And so the symbolism is clear. 
Now, while this was a national celebration, it was to be considered a religious celebration as well, joining the two together. And this act yokes the sacred religious ceremony with the role of the government, which is to function as a minister of God, structured by God's law, in response to his lordship, sovereignty, dominion, and authority over all nations. There's no such thing as a separation between God and state. This was such a joyous occasion. It was an occasion of victory. A joyous occasion of victory, but also of mercy, of God's acceptance of David and the nation of Israel. And and because it was so exciting, just think about it. This was the coup de grace. This was the, the cherry on the cream pie. And because of that excitement, David could not restrain himself for gladness. And David then therefore danced before Yahweh with all his might. And David was girded with that priestly linen ephod. Note how the entire nation is sharing in David's delight by shouting and blowing of trumpets. We see this in verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. This was victory. This was victory for Israel. The act of the trumpet blowing and the shouting reminds us of what Joshua did to conquer Jericho. Both of these symbolize victory. Israel was declaring victory as a result of God's mercy. And it was this occasion that might have prompted David to pen Psalm 24 as he brings the ark of God into the holy city speaking of the entrance as the entrance of God himself. Just think, as they bring in the ark in, they were actually bringing God in. They were bringing God, the presence of God, right into the holy city. Notice what David says as he contemplates this joyous event in Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And then he ends with Selah. Stop and contemplate what I have just said. In Psalm 48, David calls Jerusalem the city of the great king. Notice 48 verse 2. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Jerusalem was to be a place of refuge for all that entered into her, just as Jesus Christ is our refuge. Notice what he says in verse 3 of Psalm 48. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. But you see, when we realize that the geographical city of Jerusalem is pointing to the church, who is the city of the great king, Psalm 48 speaks volumes as to the character of the people of God. Notice Psalm 48. It begins like this. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. In other words, the joy of the whole earth is the church of Jesus Christ as it remains faithful and only when it remains faithful. Have you ever thought of yourself like that? That you are the joy of the whole earth? Why so? Not because we're beautiful people, but because we have the gospel of beauty. We have the beautiful Christ. Notice verse 3. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. 
For lo, the kings were assembled, they passed by together, they saw it, and so they marveled, they were troubled and hasted away. Fear took hold upon them, and pain as a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Selah. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof, mark ye well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to the generations following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. This is the testimony of the church. And this is what David was contemplating when he wrote this. He was contemplating the fact that the ark was going to be brought into Jerusalem. A city defined by its holiness. A beautiful reality in the midst of the entire earth. A city where the king, God himself, the creator, resides. Only where his presence is to be found where two or three are gathered together. Which is that place of refuge. A marvelous thing in the eyes of the kings of the earth. Not a despised thing as we are despised today, but a marvelous thing because we have the power of the gospel of Christ. A people to be marveled at and a people to be feared. A place where the loving kindness of the Lord resides with all of His righteousness. And it is from this city, the house of God, the church of Jesus Christ, that eternal organism where the praises of God go forth. Notice its construction. It is constructed wonderfully. Walk about Zion and go around about her. Tell the towers that have marked ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces. It's a wonderful con- construct. And it's a city constructed in such a way for a purpose. It's constructed for the continuity of generations. Notice verse 13. Mark well. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that ye may tell it to the generation following. And for all those that abide in the city, God is their guide forever. In verse 14, He will be our guide even unto death. He is our God forever and ever. And this is how important it is to be part of the body of Christ, which is the city of the great King, the new Jerusalem. And it is for these reasons that David is beside himself with joy and with gladness. But there might be another reason for David's joy, another aspect of his joy. Up until this time, there was no stable place for God to reside. There was no city, there was no temple, but now all that was going to change. And David was rejoicing that both he and all of the people of God would have a secure and reliable place to worship. And that brings me to the point that we need to be thankful for for what we have today, still. We have a reliable place to worship we still have been mercifully granted a place where we can congregate as one body to worship God without molestation, although the molestation is coming. You see, I think we really take for granted the assembling of the saints. All too often, we take for granted that one day whereby we start the entire week. And so, a little thing here, a little thing there, a little thing there... Well, I don't really need to go to church today. I got a bellyache. I didn't get enough sleep last night. And I can understand all of these things. They're all excuses. They're not reasons. We still have the house of the Lord on the Lord's day to gather together. While David was celebrating, and all of Israel with him, 
his wife Mikael, looking upon the festivities, curiously not involved in the festivities, begins to despise David. David had been so blessed that he was taking the sacrifice and he was giving all of these things to the people. He gave them, even the men and the women and everyone, a cake of bread, a good piece of flesh, and a flagon of wine, a symbol of the gospel. And he is rejoicing with all of Israel and not Michal. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of a trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh. And she despised him in her heart. Now the last time Michal was at a window was when she was married to David, lowering David through it so that he might escape her murderous father Saul. But if you note, very cryptically, every time we read of Michal, we have a parenthetical statement that says the daughter of Saul. And although she was on David's side in those days, much has changed since. Firstly, David had already taken other wives. Michal had been taken from David and given to another man by her father, only to be demanded back by David to the sorrow of Michal's pitiful husband, Pathiel. Perhaps she was bitter about the situation or the situation between the house of David and the house of Saul. It's bloody war and the animosity between the tribes and the death of her brothers, Jonathan and Ishbosheth. Certainly did this not fare well with the woman. She might have even been angry over the fact that David put on the robes of a priest instead of remaining in his kingly garments to make the sacrifice. Who does he think he is? He's not the priest of God. Perhaps she was envious over David's position as king itself and not being able to be the only queen because he had so many wives. Whatever the reason, she now despises David. Once at the temple in the holy city, David again offers sacrifices to God in thanksgiving to God's providential blessing after which he sends everyone to return to their own houses, presumably to continue celebrating with their families for the things that God had done. Once in the earshot of his wife, David then gets a sharp rebuke from the woman. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and you could just imagine how she's saying this, how glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaidens of his servants as one of the vain fellows, shamelessly uncovereth himself. David, however, immediately vindicates himself by claiming that his motivations were pure and that he did nothing wrong or shameful. David then insinuates that Michal's anger was really against the fact that David was king and not anyone from the house of Saul. And so David tells her that it was to honor God, his dancing was to honor God, trying to put her in her place. The Reverend Howies explains it this way. He says, David vindicates himself from her reproaches and seeks withal to humble her pride. It was before the Lord he danced in honor to him and with a single eye and intention to his glory. It was the tribute of gratitude he owed to that gracious God who had preferred him before her ungodly father. Therefore, he would again express his thankfulness. And if this were to be vile, he would be viler still, nor feared 
did he the reproach of which she was so liberal. His humiliation before God would engage the respect of those handmaidens she despised and cause him to be had in honor by the pious poor whose regard he most valued, end quote. Now Howie's then, as the pastor, he then asked his practical counsel. Notice what he says. First, we must not be laughed at because of a religious profession, nor be ashamed of it. But the more we are opposed or insulted, the more resolutely we should persevere. Secondly, if God knows our heart to be upright before him, the censures of others may well lie light upon us. Thirdly, we can never sufficiently humble ourselves before a holy God. There the greatest king is no better than sinful dust and ashes. And finally, the regard of good men, though few or despised, is more to be valued than the disregard of the multitude of the great and irreligious is to be feared. So obviously from the first time Mikhail sees her husband dancing as the priest, she is quite disturbed. And from the final verse, we read that Mikhail was entirely out of order in rebuking David for God then shuts up her womb as a punishment from that day forward. Now once again, the gospel is hidden in this historical event. Firstly, a number of things stand out. Number one, David rejoices of the presence of God now being brought into the city of God in the same way as Christ rejoices over the presence of God being brought to the people of God, the elect of God, the new Jerusalem. Secondly, David wears the linen garment in order to bring the presence of God into the holy city in the same way as Christ must bring the presence of God to the people of God by execution of his priestly position as he himself wears the linen garment. Remember, Christ establishes his church by his priesthood, not by his kingly authority. His kingly authority preserves his church, but his priesthood establishes his church by that atonement. Thirdly, David says that God chose him rather than Saul in the same way that God chose Christ rather than Adam to establish the house of God. David states that he will become more vile and base in his own sight in the same way that Christ had to humble himself becoming vile and base by taking upon himself the sin of his people. Remember, he bore the sin of his people. He was made a curse for us. Number five, David then says that his baseness would not be ridiculed by the maidens, but they would rather honor it instead in the same way that the people of God, we who are the maidens of God, seeing the humiliation of Christ as he atones for us on the cross, that ignominious death, as we see him base and vile, we can only regard him with the greatest of honor because we know that he made himself vile in our stead for the restoration of our souls before God. And finally, Michal seems to represent ancient Israel who despised the Lord And as a result, she remains barren to this day. David is now given rest from all of his enemies, and yet his heart is not content, seeing that the ark is still without a physical temple. Nothing was built. It was still a tent. Inquiring of the prophet Nathan, he is now told what to expect in the future when his son Solomon finally comes to the throne. 
We shall explore that next when we return to our series on the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.